you know, as you look at the image, it renews itself repeatedly and does something different. It continues to unfold. It continues to provide surprises and, you know, resonances as you look and so that, you know, it's not a one shot deal. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. Each week, I chat with artists who use print-based media to do something beyond the expected. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gilesombrano. Together, we speak to printmakers around the globe about their practice and passions in the world of printmaking. Hello Print Friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products, who've been offering a diverse range of high-quality products to your creative practice since 1997. But we all know that these products do not use themselves, and so that's why Speedball works with a fantastic lineup of contemporary printmakers who make up the Speedball team of demo artists. Artists like Amber Kaiser. Amber has a sculpture background and feels that printmaking was a natural direction to go into with three-dimensional quality of the printmaking techniques. As a member of Burning Bones Press, she has learned and created with many talented artists throughout the years. Amber's art focuses on the human figure and the environment, whether it's physical or cultural. Linocut is her primary medium, but she also enjoys etching and clay work. So, if you want to learn a few tricks of the trade and expand and improve your practice with artists like Amber, head on over to Speedball's YouTube channel to see how it's done. There's a link in the show notes. My guest this week is Nick Ruth. Nick is known for his multidisciplinary print practice exploring signs, signifiers, and communications. In this episode, we both put on our amateur existentialist hats and talk about the ways in which communication brings us closer together and farther apart. We also talk about the strange autonomous power of signs, different street crossing cultures, and his curatorial practice as art practice. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to see Sands and Wonders with Nick Ruth. Hi, Nick. How's it going? Uh, it's going great, Miranda. How are you doing? I'm really good. I am really excited to have a focused sit-down chat with you. <laughs> um, I feel like we've been collaborators, and I got to meet you in person uh, through SGCI this year, which was great. And I've always really enjoyed your work and the way you engage with it and talking to you in the stolen moments of conferences uh, and via email. And so this is going to be a treat to actually have a chat together. I completely agree. And uh, I'm forever indebted to you for being there at the right time with a very cozy hat. And oh, good. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what it is, but uh, every couple of years at SGCI, I, I lose a hat. And for anybody who knows the state of the top of my head, uh, <laughs> they might recognize that that could be a problem for me. So I was, I was uh, doubly pleased to be able to see you and get the hat too. Yeah. And that's, uh, you know, Madison Spring is yeah. no joke. So I'm glad I could be of service. Yeah. <laughs> so as you said, you know, you're familiar with our little show. So you probably know my traditional introduction questions, but I would love it if you could let people know a little bit about yourself and answer the who you are, where you are, what you do questions. 
Perfect. Yeah, yeah. So uh, my name is Nick Ruth, and uh, I live with my family in Rochester, New York, uh, good old Western New York, on the on the cusp of the Midwest, or perhaps already in it. Um, I uh, I teach at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, which is a small uh, school in Geneva, New York, uh, not too far from Rochester. And and then I'm a working artist, you know. I mean, that's part of the deal. Um, and my work is mostly in print me- media these days, although at times it has been primarily in painting or drawing or both. And all three of those things have always been um, – just about always been really important to me. Mm, yeah, that's definitely something that I've realized as I've been stumbling forward on the course of this podcast, um, that we've sort of changed the introduction where I now say like artists who use print media, because you dive into it too deeply and you get into this like, well, what is print and like, yeah. what makes a print? And so it's mostly now, yeah, artists, I think, like yourself, who have this strong interest in printmaking and kind of pushing its boundaries of what you can do with it in these really interesting ways. But of course, you know, it's rare that you find an artist who wants to be restricted by medium in any way, shape or form. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it just it sort of naturally unfolds that way, actually, at least in my case. And and I've heard many people say similar things. You know, you, you just have to find the right particular medium for what you're trying to get at. And that's not always obvious. And sometimes you just sort of stumble into it. And of course, the medium sometimes leads you to things that are interesting in and of itself. It doesn't have to work the other way around. It seems like it's always symbiotic, that conversation between ideas and materials. But um, but that's the way it's been for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that people maybe don't necessarily understand about printmaking or kind of gives printmaking not a bad rap, but maybe let's say like a secondary rap, which is that it's just to make multiples rather than like, no, 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 you can make multiples with it, but it's actually a super expansive set of aesthetic tools that you can get really outcomes that only exist through using that medium. Yeah. It's definitely both and, right? Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm personally not somebody who um, is involved with printmaking because of the multiple. But when I think about what printmaking can do and why I was first drawn to it and later drawn to it and endlessly drawn to it, it it has to do with that notion that, do you see how beautiful this stuff looks? This is absolutely insane and incredible. And if you want, you can have more than one. <laughs> I know. I love that. I love that both and for sure, because it's um, it's just so expansive to be a part of it in that way, you know, where you can have work and several different shows and you can trade work and, and all of that good stuff. So we're all very lucky to be here. Yeah. <laughs> And so a little more background about you, Nick, before we start talking about your your current practice. Yeah. So where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? So I grew up in in Philadelphia um, in what must have been, uh, you know, a 17th century suburb, I guess, or <gasps> century one anyway. So six miles outside of downtown in the northwest, a place called Germantown. And it was just a an amazing place to grow up. Um, super racially diverse, um, really crazy in terms of the housing stock and the way I guess the city had grown outward to meet uh, this particular patch of land. There were some beautiful old 19th century Victorian homes, but then lots of row houses and even um, some what 
people would have then called housing projects, low income housing. uh, Mm. And uh, so that was just normal. And that's just the way it was. But as I think back on it, it sort of seems sort of incredible to me. Um, It was full on 70s for me as a kid. And so um, there was all kinds of energy, creative energy, social energy, but also creative energy and people doing, you know, what we would now call DIY kinds of things, just putting together an art center and, you know, and running classes with, you know, lino cuts and all this kind of stuff. And so there was always something creative happening, and and I definitely participated in a lot of that um, because my parents made it uh, um, a priority, I guess, for for our family, and mm. maybe even more for me because they were a little bit less exhausted by the time uh, it was my turn because I'm the youngest of four. Um, so I was always got had my hand in something creatively. Um, but I, I didn't identify myself as a maker or as an artist, as a core part of my identity, um, until a lot later. So those experiences were important, but I wouldn't rank them as more important as, you know, going out and playing uh, wiffle ball until the street lights came on or whatever yeah. the case might have been. Um, I guess street hockey figured prominently in Philadelphia because this was mm-hmm. the 70s era of the Philadelphia Flyers. But um, yeah, creativity, yes. Um, you know, art specifically, well, it was always there. It was always an important part of the education. It was always an important part of the community, but it wasn't my thing yet. Uh, you know, once I got to college, um, that that was when art really entered my life full force. You know, I'd, mm. I'd been doing it through high school, and it, it mattered to me. And in fact, going to college, I thought it was one of the things that I might end up doing. But I weaseled my way into an intro photo class in the second semester of my first year, and um, had an amazing experience with a professor named Rita Tebert, and she just turned me on to all sorts of possibilities, uh, what this could do what photography could mean, what it could express, what it could look like. Um, and so I just kind of went nuts on that and and really threw myself into it and took a ton of art history classes and and just, just fell in love. Um, mm. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I, I guess I want to mention one other thing in relation to that, which is that um, – as a as a first semester junior, I took an intro drawing class, and I was completely lens based up until that time. But I took an intro drawing class um, with a guy who who really became my mentor for two years, and I I want to mention him because he just passed away, and he he had a profound impact on me. I'm, I'm sure he wasn't everybody's uh, cup of tea, but but I know he's had a, an amazing influence on dozens and dozens of artists, um, and his name was Denzel Hurley, and. Um, he's both the person who turned me on to drawing and painting, but also onto printmaking too, because I took an intaglio class with him later. And he, he just made art something that could be serious. Um, mm. It could be intensely creative, but it could also be intensely thoughtful, intensely self-examining, intensely rigorous. And um, boy, once once I got under his influence, I, I couldn't tear myself away. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's something that I hear, you know, from doing, oh, gamming up on a, you know, 150 episodes is that often in that story of how people came to printmaking, there is really a person who changes the course of their life, you know, through their influence and, and through their passion or just sort of through their being an inspiring individual. And I just always love hearing those stories because I think that sometimes people are out in the world and teaching and making and worried about 
paying the mortgage and doing all of that. And I don't know that everyone realizes that you do have the capacity to be that person for someone. And every time someone tells that story, at least I find it inspiring as as like, okay, like, here's another example of the way in which that sort of intergenerational passion and love for this medium do get passed on. Yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely. lovely to hear. Mm. Yeah, super profound. And, um, I, you know, I guess I want to say that I think that it's kind of funny because I, I actually, I do try to, because it was so profound, I do try to think about it. And I can't really tell you what it was that he did um, yeah. specifically. I, I And I don't know if I could even remember more than a thing or two that he ever said to me. Um, and I think that that's actually, you know, he, you know, those actors who, uh, managed to completely blow you away while saying almost no words. Mm-hmm. Denzel was like that. He he chose his words carefully. He was usually asking questions, and he'd he'd ask you a question, and then he'd just you know it went and it was a question that was sort of philosophical and impossible to answer, and then mm. he'd sort of smile and laugh. <laughs> so he's like, you're telling me he's like the Daniel Day Lewis of art making. That's exactly. what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's that's wonderful because I'm sure it is a question that you must ask yourself as a mentor and a teacher yourself, right? Because like that's what yeah. you would want to be for someone, I'm sure. And and I think maybe the the answer isn't so much that there is one universal formula for this is how you inspire. I think it has more to do with like different keys and different locks, you know, and and how different students need to hear different things at different times from different people. And sometimes you just get to be in the right place at the right time. I I've, I haven't taught since grad school, you know, when I was teaching intro to art history. But I do sometimes do uh, visits at universities and do studio visits with grad students in that time. And when I was at SGCI, I had a woman come up to me who's now, a, you know, working at a university somewhere. And she said, your crit changed my life, you know? And it's just awesome. like, I'm sure it was such an incredible feeling. And it was also just, you know, that idea, too, of of like that. I'm sure it wasn't, you know, that I, I, I came down, you know, with like the deni- the divine knowledge of art making. And, you know, you could like reach out like God and Adam on the Sistine Chapel. But I think it just was like the key in the lock. Like I just was like the right place, the right time, the right message that's not controllable. But we just we have to go through life hoping for moments like that. Hallelujah. <laughs> and so um so when did printmaking like really you know get its claws in you in your art story and and when did you realize that this was going to be a part of your creative practice in an intrinsic way yeah so i it it was there from pretty early on uh from after that uh first intaglio class i took with denzel probably a, as a senior in undergrad and when i went to grad school i went directly out of undergrad um which ended up working out great for me um it's not certainly the way it works for everybody but um i continued to make prints in grad school while i was making uh paintings and drawings and it always just seemed like another way to explore whatever was going on in the studio, um, whatever that set of concerns was, uh, or a set of, yeah. And it, it might be, I was working representationally. It might be, I was working abstractly, but I always wanted to see how that translated, um, into an aquatint or an etching. Mm. Uh, after that, after grad school, losing access to easy access to a shop, um, it wasn't until I started teaching that, uh, it came back into my practice and it came back in, in a similar way, Except for I wanted to expand what I understood, uh, expanded what I could do. So 
Uh, I worked with a guy uh, at, a, at a local school here to learn some things about lithography and I made a set, series of prints that um, that explored some ideas I was working on unrelated to hard edge geometric abstraction uh, in a set of lithographs, but also in a set of big etchings. And I worked on some woodcuts that related to similar ideas um, about, uh, you know, pattern based compositions. And and then uh, my work started to shift away from abstraction and into a period of uh, questioning and searching and, and uncertainty. And um, I was struggling with this whole question of how to make marks and how to fill fields, how to, how to make big fields of color um, that, that were luminous and, and, and bold and, and allowed for a, a deeper investigation of color because I, I had decided that was something I needed to, to learn more about. And I was at SGCI in Washington, D.C., and I saw Karen Kunk make a, a do a mm. demo of her techniques. And, and I just thought, oh, shit, that's it. That's the one. That's that's what I got to do. Um, and so I immediately started exploring uh, and experimenting with those techniques. And it just fell right in line. It, it was this way that I could be extremely painterly. Uh, in print media, it was a way that I could make big, big moves uh, of big shapes and and um, big areas that that didn't have my hand in it, other than maybe cutting out a shape. Um, and it allowed me to work in layers, so I could build the complexity of an image successively over time, rather than feeling like I had to sum it all up in one shot. Um, which even with, with intaglio, sometimes it feels like, you know, you, you kind of have to key in that image, that, that basic idea. Um, and I guess that's mainly me because, you know, I've never been a good scraper and burnisher. So, you know, in my intaglio prints, I put it in and then it's kind of stuck. And, and then it's a matter of, you know, twiddling the knobs, trying to adjust the tonal relationships or whatever. But with this approach to just, you know, basically monoprint or monotype, uh, I could just keep laying things down. And because I was laying them down in such thin layers of highly transparent color, things would get so rich, uh, and but still stay lively. Um, I, I wouldn't end up with those kinds of deadened surfaces that you can sometimes get when, when the ink gets too heavy and too opaque. Um, so yeah, it was probably, I, 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 I'm not positive. I think that might've been 2007 or something. Mm. Um, and, and since then it's been dominantly print media for me. I, I just, you know, there's always something else and some other way to, to harness that, to harness the, that set of visual effects that's possible, um, you know, towards some kind of formal structure that, um, that best expresses the set of ideas I'm, I'm working on. Yeah. And in terms of the content of your work, you know, it looks like you've been interested in signs for about 10 years. Is that right? Yeah. I, I, to me, the umbrella term is communication. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, so that goes, I suppose, in some philosophical directions. But uh, Oh, you know, I love that. Like, let's <laughs> dive in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, so uh, as a as a good old, um, you know, sort of uh, amateur existentialist, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I think about that kind of issue of, um, the possibility of connection with people and, um, and, and, and I'm always wondering about, you know, where the meaning and the meaningfulness is and how to get at it, you know, because I definitely experience my life as, uh, filled with moments of meaningfulness, uh, and they are what brings me a feeling of joy. Um, but you know, I'm also aware that, 
communication is uh, uh, inevitably fraught and and inevitably complicated. You know, it, it's it's just not the case that somebody says something and then whoever's hearing it uh, gets everything that the that the person who said it meant. Um, so there's something weird about this whole notion that meaning gets constructed in that exchange, right? In the, in the, in the words themselves. And then, you know, all the assumptions and experiences that the listener is bringing to that and all the assumptions and experiences that the speaker is bringing to that. And so I, I sort of conceive of this as these two entities with this kind of buzzing alive space between them. But it's a buzzing and a live space that's fluid, you know, it's it, 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 where it's difficult to pin things down. And so so communication per se uh, strikes me as being, you know, really, really, really important. And and beginning to think more in those terms um, kind of dovetailed with a moment where I was working with kind of uh, sort of Rube Goldberg machine imagery where, you know, I was doing these tautological machines like weather systems where it just sort of repeats itself and the water goes up and it goes into something and then the cloud rains it back down and then that's collected and then round and round it goes. And um, and and the forms were were big and um uh, oh, just kind of wonderful boxes and tubes and holes and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and I was driving along to work back and forth. And, and this is around the time when cell towers started to appear and they just started to punch into my eyeballs all the time. Um, just driving along and like, what the hell is that thing? And, and where did it come from? And, and what's it, what does it do? Where's it, where's it, what, what, what the hell is going on? And, uh, and yet simultaneously, man, that's cool looking, you know, I, I'm ambivalent about that. I, I don't think I like it as much as the trees, but, uh, well, it's kind of cool looking. It's an mm. amazing piece of engineering and those dishes are weird and cool. And, and then you start to think, oh, well I could work with those shapes and those shapes are kind of compelling. And, and you know what, that thing is about communication and uh-huh. it's this big thing in the landscape that's just calling out to us and telling us about what you know, our culture thinks is important because here it is, it's stuck in the landscape. And I guess we all agree to that, you know? Uh, yeah. I think that's, that's funny that you should say that, you know, we, we all agreed to it because as you were talking, I was thinking about the fact that, you know, you do make these really compelling and just straight up beautiful images of cell towers, which is really putting them through such a different lens than they're usually seen, where I think people do maybe see them as intrusions, but perhaps only because they feel like they didn't have a choice about it, right? Like, like yeah. there's something about the human rebelliousness that yeah. the very fact that you nobody asked you if you wanted this cell phone tower or this wind turbine in your view, that people will object to it, you yeah. know, because it seems like an imposition uh, by its very nature. And, and you know, you didn't seem to have that response. Well, you were looking at it, you know, through an artist's eyes, you know, <laughs> that like, oh, look at those forms, you know. But yeah, it's, it's funny, yeah, because it's, we obviously have, because if we valued not having cell towers over cellular communication, they would, they wouldn't be around. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, you know, and and that just sort of fits into all these dizzying conversations about, you know, our economic structure, you know, the premises and functions of capitalism and and, you know, uh, who's leading whom around here, whether, um, you know, uh, powerful people create 
markets or whether people do uh, or unpowerful people do like you know like what what makes us all want cell phones so bad is it is mm. it because they're there or is it because we really 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 need them is it because people are telling us we need them or is it because we really really need them and so i have i have a tremendous degree of ambivalence about all that stuff um and i remember my uncle who was a presbyterian minister in uh, new york city uh across the 70s and 80s, I, I lived with him for a summer. And uh, one evening at dinner, he said to me, so do you believe in change or progress? <laughs> like, whoa. Do boss. I, I can only pick one? <laughs> yeah, right? But that was a question that he was posing that stuck with me to this day because it, it's a profound, profound question. Uh-huh. And, and, and really one that's tricky to solve because certainly so many of the technologies that I might be, you know, critical of um, as, you know, degrading our individual or collective or community experience – are things that have done really, really great things for human beings, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, medical technology would be an example. Um, the kinds of medical interventions that are possible now, you know. Um, but that doesn't answer some of the philosoph- philosophical questions about what makes a life meaningful. So, I mean, in the back of my mind, this stuff is all percolating along while I'm working. And I, I really conceive of my work as um, objects for contemplation. And I mean that in two important ways, um, because it's very serious to me that it's that it's visual. And, mm-hmm. and, and that is um, core to what I value personally and what matters to me personally. And it, it's core to what I hope to try to provide. Um, because after all, I'm, I'm making a thing and putting a thing out into the world too. And I want that thing to be something that provides a perceptual experience that is beautiful, that, that, that provides beauty um, to, the, to the viewer. And my version of beauty in that sense has to do with formal complexity or formal formal sophistication so that you know as you look at the image it 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 renews itself repeatedly and does something different it continues to unfold it continues to provide surprises and and um uh you know resonances as you look and so that you know it's not a one-shot deal but i want that same thing um in terms of ideas too i i want the work to open up lines of thought for people um, that make them wonder about the things that are being discussed. Mm, Yeah. I think that that idea of just, you know, that kind of buzzing space between two individuals, as you called it, who are trying to communicate and how what is going on there is such a, a fascinating question. And it's one that I've been thinking of a lot more in the last six months, having moved back to an English-speaking country. Because mm. when I was in Thailand, and I didn't speak very much Thai, but you get by with what you have, and you get by with gestures. And it, it really is, in terms of communicating with um, people you don't know very well or strangers, it's, it's, you have to distill things down to what is necessary. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of uh, reading social subtext you know or anything like that and then coming back to the states and working my new job and working with people and working with egos and working with people over text and over email and over phone call often Mm. it um you know the amount that can be 
miscommunicated with these new communication pathways has just been fascinating to see when you're both using the same language. You know, where before I'm using Google Translate, I'm asking friends for help, you know, just, even to just do something like rent, rent, rent our apartment, right? And if I can just get to the goal of renting the apartment, it is successful. And there's, there's, yep. not, there's not all of these, these um, more subtleties when you're, when you're dealing with a language barrier. And, you know, I, it reminds me a bit, um, there's like a, a, a Norbakov quote that's the, the cranium is a space traveler's helmet. <laughs> and it is just, we're, <laughs> this is going to sound to me of an armchair existentialist, or what do you call it? Like, um, part-time existential, or existential, the amateur, amateur existentialist. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, is that, you know, ultimately, like that experience of of being a human, of walking around in your cranium, your space, your space traveler's helmet, it's kind of fundamentally alone, and you, there's only you in here. And we walk through life, and we and we try to alleviate that loneliness. I think you know through yeah. communication. That's the only way to do it. That's the yeah. like the only way is you know whether you're 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 writing to someone or you're talking with someone. It's it's alleviating that fundamental aloneness that we're all born with. And so to go from like, um, you know, Russian literary to Donnie Darko, uh, you know, every that, that eventually that, you know, every living creature on the planet dies alone. You know, that that's that's fundamentally an alone thing as well. And so this journey from what I think can be really a lonely experience of being a human with self-awareness stumbling through life the only reprieve from that is through communication. And of course, as you're speaking to, the complexity of communication has just become exponentially more difficult, but also accessible, but also nuanced um, in such a short period of time. And our little brains, like our poor little brains, like, you know, how are they going to ever catch up with it, you know? For sure. I mean, you know, uh, I don't want to be glib about it, but I mean, you know, I don't know. Often, I don't know what I mean to me. You know, yeah. <laughs> like when I'm when I'm talking to myself, I mean, what are you talking about? Like, well, I'm saying the thing. Well, what are you talking about? You know, and much less how anybody else is is understanding what I, what I'm saying, and and it just seems so overwhelming sometimes. Um, but it is where the joy is, and uh, and and I think about that too, and I think it's really really important. I mean, I guess. You know, talking about communicating is in its own way an, an act of resistance to to existential dread, you know. Mm. And one thing that's always rattled around in my head as a as a, a model that I, I don't know if everybody would agree with this, but I just think about, for instance, blues music, you know, and the relationship between what reading a lyric from a blues song, let's say, let's say a blues song that's not trying to be funny lyrically, but that's just trying to tell a sad story, you know. And then hearing the music, mm. it, you know, the juxtaposition of those two things is so powerful. I mean, if you're that depressed, how can you pick up the guitar? And yet <sighs> picking up the guitar is the is the only response to something that hard and that sad or whatever the case might be. And so listening to that music becomes joyful, actually. It becomes this joyful resistance to, you know, the, the more challenging things in life. And I connect to that um, personally. I, I, you know, aspire to having um, some kind of related effect. Mm, yeah, there's a, a a new book out by Susan Cain that's called Bittersweet, mm. and 
it's I don't know, I think it came out just a couple of days ago. So but it's in that book she talks about melancholia in music and and this feeling of bittersweetness and, and how there is something in there that alleviates that kind of fundamental pain yeah. of being a human, you know, knowing loss, knowing impermanence, yeah. um, knowing your eventual end and what everything you love's eventual end and and that and that that is in a way um kind of the the key to a lot of spiritualism Mm -hmm. that in our secular world we're missing yeah because we we don't have that um ashes to ashes and dust to dust uh experience of 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 going and worshiping and um organized ways most many people don't some people still do obviously but and and that music can can do that in communication and that that way that that people connect is that kind of relief it's the release valve of the um of of that like well at least we're all in it together which is always so fascinating to me that like for some reason if you've gone through something really really hard and then you meet someone else who's also been there, it does relieve the pain. And I don't understand what's happening there. Like, I don't know why that works, yeah. you know, yeah. but it does, but it does. And we need ways to, to communicate um, for that. And, you know, and now we have memes we can send, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, but we also still have, you know, beautiful, sad music or, um, you know, uh, beautiful beautiful pictures or, or beautiful plays or, or beautiful dances that, mm-hmm. that express, you know, the full range. I mean, I think that, you know, it's connected to both the, the very concept of sharing um, on the one hand, and then it's also connected to um, this human capacity for invention, um, for mm. inventing forms to carry our messages about our experiences. And so, you know, there's something about particular chords or there's something about particular dynamics that um, that accesses that thing, that accesses that same thing that you get when you talk to somebody who's experienced something related to what you have. Um, and I, I just had a conversation with a friend who I don't get to see very often. Um, and he and I lived together in the 90s. And it just so happened that our fathers passed away within six months of each other. Mm. And we're just bonded for life because of that experience. Uh, and, you know, he said, yeah, I was going to text you, you know, back in October, um, uh, you know, because it's been 30 years and um, just wanted to, to reach out and, 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 and make that um, connection. And uh, I don't know, it's just, it, it strikes me that, that, that we're talking about some profound stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that uh, is, like kind of the only balm I know of of going something through something like losing a parent, you know, um, is that is someone else just like seeing you in that, mm-hmm. and there's no better way to see someone in it than I think to have also lived it. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Um, well, man, what do you want to talk about now? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean the. <laughs> <laughs> the joy of it is in there too and i gotta say i've been doing some things that have been bringing me a lot of joy recently yeah um uh, so can i just like uh 
sprinkle some glitter on all the death talk here for totally a totally uh, <laughs> I, yeah and i've got and i do have like more very specific art questions too that you know i don't want to make sure we get to but um yeah i've the let's talk about the joy and the pain here yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah well right and i you know because i i don't um i mean i've posed this all as um uh you know existentialism but i i i think that I'm more comfortable really in the end with posing it as uh, about wondering. And I, I, I'm absolutely positive that, you know, most artists would say that, you know, one of the things that they strive for is um, attentiveness or, or awareness. And, and, and that's being attentive and aware to their surroundings and to the people they interact with, and but also to the materials they work with and the images that they make, you know, you want to be receptive because that's, that's the, 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 the Petri dish for invention, you know, is, is that, you know, when you're, when you're receptive, when you're paying attention and you notice things, you can capitalize on them and, and, and turn them into something. Um, and so that, that ends up being, uh, that, that notion of attentiveness ends up being, I think, really, really important. But connected to that is this whole thing of wondering. And and mm. that's what it is for me, mostly. I, I'm just moving around through the world, and I'm just wondering about it, you know. And I'm not actually staking out definitive positions. I mean, I, I definitely have some, but um, often I, I feel like I can't say in any kind of definitive way, cell towers are good. Yeah. Cell towers are bad. Road signs are good road signs are bad you know i'm just more fascinated by the, the their very fact um by the, the the fact that they're there and what all the set of related meanings are that that comes from that by the fact of billboards out in the middle of open fields or crammed on top of buildings and and the messages that they're selling uh, yeah you know and road signs that's that's our social contract i mean you know it tells us what you can do and what you can't you know and it's not and there's no sort of uh, ambivalence on the part of the state when the sign goes up and the message goes on it uh so i'm interested in in wondering about those things and then sharing that wondering in a way that uses visual relationships and visual you know compositional structures to present something else at the same time so I want to look not so much at the messages that are being carried, but I kind of want to look at the messenger, which is why I'm often mm. depicting signs from the other side. I'm mm -hmm. interested in, in exposing the message carrier, um, the, the the very structure itself, because I think the structures are interesting and I think they're sculptural and I think that they're um, compositionally fascinating. And, and but I also think that there's something that we should notice and, and wonder about. Um, yeah. You know, what, what's going on there? So that leads me into all kinds of different things. Totally. It's they're so interesting to kind of think about them as their own almost autonomous figures of authority. And yeah. I was thinking about maybe it was at SGCI we were talking about talking about your cell towers as actual portraits. You know, like yes. you would do of a person and that kind of like loving gaze you can give them. And 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 you know, Santa Fe is is really like a I called it a little hamlet the other day like it's it's not very big there's very commonly you will find dirt roads just going to someone's house mm. um and you know it's you're driving around especially off tourist season I found it's starting to pick up now but like heading home from an opening or something and you could be on a very uh empty road and you come to a four-way stop and you can see that there's no one coming from either direction. And I will do a full stop with the rollback, you know, like, because 
The sign told me to. And not only that, but I would feel bad and weird about not doing that. Um, I am that deep into the social contract. I'm also Norwegian by heritage, so it's in my blood, too. But yeah. yeah, it's like, it's so interesting to think about these omnipresent objects in our life that control our behavior, but also fade into the background, unless someone like an artist like you brings them to the foreground and starts asking these questions about them. And, and, and like you said, you know, not in this way of, of stop signs are bad. I don't think anyone would say that, but more of this kind of wondering of hold on a minute. What is this thing that's in our world? What is this thing that we, at least in my case, like I have almost, you know, a little bit of fear of like, I got it. I got it. I got to do what that sign says. You know, I got to do it. Same with um, speed limit signs on the long, empty roads of of New Mexico, where you you know, there's no cops, there's no police helicopters, there's, there's, there's no one would know. Yep. No one would know. And yet I have to do what the sign says. Yeah. 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 Kind of fascinating to think about that uh, broader set of um, social relationships and the role of sets of rules in both controlling us on the one hand, but but also maybe comforting us, too, because, Mm. you know, one of the things that you're always um, wrestling with is what's the right thing to do? And, you know, things the states solved that for you, at least when it comes to an intersection, you know, they, they've <laughs> made it possible for you to have the comfort in knowing that this is the right thing to do. Um, this is this is this is what's good for us all as if I just abide by this and everybody else should, too. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe there's some comfort in it, too. Maybe maybe there's something um, that feels uh, that that feels a little simplified and, and takes away the need to have to decide as an individual about every single thing. I mean, I think that that's something that, you know, communities per se, um, cohesive communities, and I guess religious communities is one of the things that pops into my head, you know, probably offer. Um, I, I think that there are some potential downsides there. And um, certainly uh, uh, with both states and, and, and religions, or, you know, any organization and any mm-hmm. institution, there are opportunities for abuses of power. Um, but systems of rules, system conventions, I guess, social conventions, they can really help too. Yeah. And I'm sure that there is a correlation too between my desire to follow the social contract and the extent to which the social contract has benefited me. Yeah. Uh, as well. You know, I think that's that's certainly in there. Um, you know, I am a white blonde lady with a master's degree. Like in a lot of ways, uh, our social contract privileges me. Mm-hmm. And so no wonder I'm, you know, driving around being like, got to do what that sign says because look how it's turned out, <laughs> you know? Yep. Um, and, and, you know, I mentioned kind of in passing, you know, being Norwegian and I think... Uh, one of the things that we maybe have talked about is how um, culturally Norwegians are big sign followers. And I, like I said, I have family there and it's, you know, you're standing on a street corner and the don't walk sign is on in downtown Oslo and there could be no cars coming Yeah, and nobody's walking, Yeah, you know, and it's, it's, and, but that is a society that 
really takes care of its people. That social contract says if you have a baby, if you want to go to college, if you need medical help, our society is there for you. And I don't know. Maybe there's like a, a correlation there as well. It's hard to say. Yeah, I, I'm I'm left wondering. I gotta say, right? You know, because I I agree with everything you're saying, and and yet I, I just don't quite know, um, you know, where to go with it, right? Mm. Um, I just I see the the possibility of you know what might seem like um, a benevolent overlord, <laughs> uh, you know, going wrong pretty bad. And I think there are a lot of historical examples of that, but. On the other hand, you know, libertarianism with a capital L, you know, seems pretty terrifying, too. Mm, yeah. And I think that the um, in a way for me, like signs and following them, it, it can really stand as this general good kind of comparison to that gray space of all of that, you know, um, that I think, as you say, we have yet to see one um fully functional example of a benevolent dictator in, in the history of the world yeah. um or as you say like that the the kind of chaos of every person for themselves and there is a gray messy area where societies kind of stumble forward and so you know like i will jaywalk like crazy but i won't do the running the stop sign in the middle of the night you know so it's like like i for some for some reason have come up with a set of rules in my head about the signs i have to fall and the signs i don't and that's it is that like m that messy area of, of humans wanting to have the set of rules that you can look to and you can say this is it this is done you don't need to make judgment calls on ever again just follow this path and it's going to be okay. But of course, that never happens, right? Like, uh. there's, and, and, yeah, and I think there's something in there, you know, whether it's like Ten Commandments, right, which, of course, are, are often written in signage, um, you know, or uh, Jordan Peterson's, was it t 10 Rules for Life, 12 Rules for Life? I don't know what it is, but, mm. um, you know, he wrote some book like that that was quite popular, too, and, you know, more on the libertarian side. So, yeah. Yeah. I've, I, I can totally relate to that. And I, I'll never forget, uh, you know, growing up in uh, in a big northeastern city. And, you know, um, the main thing is I understood it being, um, say, a high school person um, was, you know, you have to read what's happening around you. So you, you, you're scanning for maybe dangerous situations of all sorts. And one of those is where and when you can cross a street. And so, you know, you just get pretty comfortable just crossing it wherever as long as you're not going to get run over. Right. That mm -hmm. seems pretty sane and, and pretty normal. And then I went to college in Southern California and I would do this, the same thing, at least initially, um, halfway through a block and I see an opportunity to cross and I know I'm going to be, you know, well in front of that car that's coming, you know, and start to cross and everybody slams on the brakes, <laughs> you know, because the car culture in Southern California related to pedestrians was totally different, you know, totally. But he started to cross the road, man, you better stop or you're, you know, like, so they were following the rules too, but I wasn't in compliance with that culture. Um, yeah, it just it just sort of absolutely illustrates this dynamic you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, I had the same experience, the the opposite one coming from Seattle, where you literally just can walk out in front of a car and they'll be like, Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. I'm right. so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then I went to like DC and learned like really quickly that like, yeah. like, 
I think that car was trying to kill me. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very and, different. And then there's the other one, and this is brilliant too. So as as part of my job, I've I've had the insane. I mean, talk about privilege. I I have all the privileges that you're talking about, and 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 others, um, too. And uh, but one of them has been the opportunity to um, direct or co-direct study abroad semesters. And oh, so wonderful! Been able to live abroad a little bit, and uh, with my family, which is so cool. And um, one of the places that we've gotten to do this is in Rome. And basically the lesson we learned about, you know, the, the pedestrian culture in Rome is you can kind of just go ahead and cross the street, but don't, once you start, don't stop, don't hesitate because the cars know what you're doing and these drivers are really good and they'll mm-hmm. just go around you. Right. But if you hesitate or stop, yeah. get run over because people won't expect that. And uh, it was pretty. <laughs> it's so interesting. And yeah, what one more uh, crossing street anecdote. When I first moved to Thailand, it's, you know, kind of famously, you know, chaotic Bangkok traffic. And of course, um, yeah. well, really, when I first visited, this was more of an issue. But the, the driving on the um, opposite side of the street than I grew up with. Right. And so what you do, though, is you have to find a soy dog. You have to find a street dog that's going to cross and uh, you have to cross with them because they can watch the traffic and they know how to cross the street safely. Amazing. <laughs> amazing. So, yeah, it's really, it's so interesting. You have to like find one of the locals and they'll, they'll help you. Yeah. It's a, a free floating service dog. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's why I adopted two of them. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm thinking a little bit about like if we can in the time we have left circle back to the the cell towers specifically because we've been talking a lot about signs and of course cell towers another form of communication and thinking about the kind of obtrusiveness of them and I was actually thinking about your work the other day because I was up in Taos and I was driving around with a friend and there was this cell tower that had been disguised as a tree oh yeah and it was this giant evergreen and we're in the middle of the desert like things don't grow higher than like maybe seven feet tall and they're pinyons and they look really different and it was this weird um in it would have been less obtrusive had it just been a cell tower right because it just looked completely out of place on these flat open plains and i thought about you and your work and your kind of interest in like the hidden and the exposed in this sort of visual chatter that takes up our daily lives and so i'd Wondered if you'd ever thought about exploring that that strange aping of trees that cell towers can do. Yeah, I, I have thought about that. Um, and yet, in, as it turns out, it's, it seems to me to somehow be more direct to to to, to talk about the, the sort of um, what do they call that? Um, you know, the, the, the baldness of it all, the directness of the unadorned um, matter-of-fact cell tower and the unadorned or matter-of-fact billboard or sign, but the cell towers in particular. Um, those other ones, they're, they're, they're actually almost too comic, you know? Uh, they're just so fucking hilarious that this thing has got uh, branches. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, behind which are are these little dishes that are doing the work. Um, the 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 it's like uh, they're dressed up for Halloween or something. Yeah, and it's... and it's so strange. It's so, um, but it's kind of funny. They just make me laugh when I see them. Actually, um, so I, I get the dynamic that you're talking about. Uh, but you know that 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 does actually circle back to this other issue of the forms and. Um, 
it, it really is some there is something specific about the structures and the shapes that are involved um, in the cell towers that that I find kind of irresistible. Mm. And um, I don't know if if it would work as well for me uh, if if it was now adopting the language of um, say the natural landscape, uh, which which certainly people are trying to do to make them sort of you know air quotes fit in, but. Um, but yeah. I, I don't know if I would be able to work with that. Well, I mean, I feel like you do so much to alter the cell towers to make them very aesthetically appealing while at the same time, it's very, very clear what they are. And I think that that is um, a little bit of the artistic magic that's happening in your work. And it would be really strange I think to kind of try to take that framework and try and put it over that kind of a cell tower because Mm -hmm. they're already like I think sort of what's what's happening what's sort of fascinating sort of interesting visually is that you're taking something that's so utilitarian and making it beautiful and so to something that's already trying to be beautiful or trying to at least be like unobtrusive that has an aesthetic consideration already built into it I don't know that if it would be as interesting of a flip-flop sort of visually yeah yeah Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with it um but you know I I I don't want to foreclose the future right (laughs) yeah yeah I and yeah it was so funny next time I go by I'll take a photo for you because it's it's such an interesting thing that's happening where they're just making it so much worse yeah. Because because we do edit out cell towers in our landscape. We yes. don't see them. Right. And yet to make it an evergreen tree, it was just bizarre. Yeah. It was so, so like very much like a sore, thrum, sore thumb. Um, we don't have a whole lot of time left, but I'd, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about the curatorial side of your work as well, mm-hmm. um, because I feel like that is is something that definitely is a part of your artistic practice too. And you've curated some really interesting signs. I'm thinking of like the Science and Signifiers exhibition yeah. uh, that I got to see the catalog of, which was beautiful. And yeah, just kind of speak to that and how that maybe fits in to overall what you do. Yeah. Um, I'm, I guess I want to sort of begin talking about that by just emphasizing the whole chicken and egg nature of everything for me. Uh, and it's just so uh, easy to talk about things, especially in retrospect, as if there is this concrete narrative that makes it obvious that this had to lead to this and this had to lead to that and this had to lead to this. And this is true in my work um, in the relationship of the subject matter that's um, under consideration and then also the visual structures and the materials I use. Uh, it, it, some, it, it, it's just not that it, the case that it works from idea to materials to image or um, it, it's it's working in all different kinds of directions. And I, I feel the same way about things like curating, which seems like a fancy word uh, for what I think I'm doing, um, which is I'm just continuing to think about the things that I think about and noticing kindred spirits and wanting to have conversations with them. And it feels completely woven into the way I'm approaching my work in the studio, the way I'm thinking about it in the studio, and also woven into teaching, too, um, because one of the things that I've taken the opportunity to do is to try to 
curate shows uh, at my school in those years when I'm the person teaching our senior seminar for studio art, because it seems like such an amazing opportunity to pull seniors uh, into something that's going to involve those kinds of ideas on the one hand, but also that set of professional practices, um, just what it takes to install a show or to light a show or to design Mm. or all that kind of stuff. But intellectually, it really is about the conversation with other artists. Um, and it is about seeing and recognizing um, the people's interests and people's overlapping interests and then trying to put artworks in relation to one another in ways that um, create interesting and new trains of thought, I guess. Um, and so that's kind of how I've approached it all along. Um, I did a show in, in 2009 and man, I wish I'd made a catalog. I've thought several times to myself that I would like to go back and make a catalog for that. Um, and that one was called, um, nice place to visit printmaking and the anxious landscape. (laughs) They were just such amazing people doing such cool, weird things in relation to the landscape. Um, main, many or most of whom I, uh, found by wandering around open portfolio at SGCI, um, you know, where you've got dozens and dozens and dozens of amazing artists just saying, here, here's me, here's what I do. And so I'd walk around open portfolio for a couple of years, whatever. And I would just notice what people were working on and, And then the idea would form and then I'd say to them, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this thing. Would you be interested in participating? And they'd say, hell yeah, I would. And I'd say, "Okay, cool. Um, And and then it would just sort of roll forward uh, like that. And the signs and signifiers thing um, was was very similar. Um, It was something that I initially proposed as something to be at the MAPC conference. And and it was um, at the MAPC conference in Louisville in in, in 2016. and that just was so exciting and thrilling um, to bring together that group of artists and to put their works in conversation with each other. Um, and then I reprised it back at my school and, and adjusted it a little bit um, and brought the students in uh, to be involved. So I don't know. It, it doesn't seem to me that all that separate or distinct. And I guess that's an Im- important thing. Um, and then, mm. you know, and then there's the question of just um looking for opportunities to be in conversations, right? Like there's, there's looking for ways in which you as a maker and as a creative can, um, present an, a, a conversation, right. And invite people into it. But then there are other conversations that are already happening and maybe you want to see if you can be a part of it. And that's what happened with the IPEP, um, international printmaking exchange program out of India, uh, run by Rajesh Pularwar. Um, I got contacted by um, a colleague and friend, uh, Fahima Vadat, uh, who had done it. And, and she said, well, you might want to consider it. And so I participated as an artist one year. And then after some programming that we did in relation to that here in Rochester, that also involved the symposium where we brought in really cool people to talk about um, the tradition of the exchange portfolio. Uh, the folks at IPEP invited me to be the curator for the following year. And so, I mean, you know, it's, 
it's really uh, this <laughs> this one big tumbling amorphous. Uh, I mean, I'm imagining um, the blob from you know the movie, you know, uh-huh. like m- moving forward almost in a slug-like way, you know. But but you know, sort of one little arm reaches out and does this thing, and then the next thing, and then but it's always kind of slowly grinding forward, um, with not all that much compartmentalization, really. Because, yeah. Because these things flow together so well. I mean, I, I wouldn't have it any other way. It it just seems like such a rich life to it is such a rich life to be able to be somebody who makes things and has a solo uh, artistic practice, but somebody who collaborates, but and somebody who curates and somebody who participates. And um, I don't know, it's exhilarating, really. Mm. I think that's so significant what you're saying about it, you know, really being the amorphous blob, because, of course, as creative people anything and everything can be part of that practice. You know, I can have a conversation with the checker at Trader Joe's that might show up in one of these podcasts. I can listen to a book on tape. I can go to an exhibition and it's all feeding into this thing, which is, I just got to make things for some reason. Yeah. 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 And I'm sure that like curation and getting to work so closely, as you mentioned with those artists, um, it's got to, I'll be a part of it. Yeah. All in the continuum. A hundred percent. And, and it, and it's this self feeding thing too, because the excitement generates excitement, which generates excitement. And, um, and, and there are always new threads. I, I think about this, you know, like if, if the metaphor were, uh, you know, life as a hallway or something like that, you know, well, it's got doors, right? And so just keep opening them and mm. go them. and you just don't know where all that's going to lead. Um, but as long as you're talking to people who are, are reaching out to people or interacting with people who, you know, have shared interests, then you, you're pretty guaranteed to be having a conversation that you care about. And hopefully mm. you can bring something about your caring into that conversation that might be valuable to them, too. And be a little less lonely in that spacesuit, you know? Right? Yeah. How? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's, I guess that's the other thing. And, I mean, you know, maybe uh, I hope it's not um, corny or repetitive, right? Because just about everybody you talk to will say this. But that is one of the things about printmaking that is just undeniable and and so critical, um, mm. which is that it's it's a real community and and a generous community. Um, so geez, I mean, you know, you have a question about some technical thing and you're going to get more feedback than you could possibly want. (laughs) That's so true. It is. Well, I feel like that's a beautiful note to wrap up this chat on. And, um, speaking of the community and people with questions, where can people find you and follow you? Probably uh, Instagram is a great place to go, and um, I, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, sort of chagrined, uh, but at my you know waspy uh, middle initial, but I my uh, Instagram is at Nicholas H Ruth, <laughs> and um, uh, and then I'm on Facebook too, and then I have a website uh, which is www.nicholashruth.com, and those are the best places to go. Um, I'm happy to interact with anybody and answer questions and be in conversation. I, I absolutely love that. Um, so I'd, I'd welcome, welcome people to interact. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, this was really, really fun to, like I said, get to have a long form discussion with you and um, get to, you know, flex all the 
philosophical existential muscles that I'm really just walking around flexing all the time. <laughs> Basically, I'm, you know, sitting at the stoplight listening to Leonard Cohen, you know, uh, doing this. And so it's, it's always delightful to, to get it out there and, um, yeah, connect with another print friend. So thank you for so much for your time. Thanks, Miranda. It was really fun. Yeah, beautiful. Well, I will be in touch um, when I know this is coming out. And um, yeah, let's find an excuse to work together more. Amen. Sounds great. All right. Have a great afternoon. Yeah, you too. Okay, bye. Bye. If you like today's episode, we also have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if you've listened this far, you might be that special kind of print friend who would leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world to us if you did. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Robert Kipnis. Robert is famous for his dramatic, emotional, mesitant landscapes with windswept trees and evocative lighting. We talk about how a chance elective in art led him to a solo show in New York City seven months later taking up printmaking well into his painting career, and what it takes to be successful artists. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.